0: Hi, I'm Ali Hassan, host of CBC's Laugh Out Loud. Do you like to laugh? Because we're serving up big laughs each week. We feature comedians from across Canada. You might already be fans of some of them, and others might be new discoveries. We record emerging comedians and established pros in front of live audiences all across the country, and we promise that you'll be literally laughing out loud. You can find Laugh Out Loud on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: This is a CBC Podcast.
2: The front cover of Catherine Hernandez's book says her name on it, but according to Catherine, the book was written by her ancestors whispering through her. Tom Power got to the bottom of what that means, and it might change the way you see inspiration all around you. And you'll hear from the artist G.R. Grit about their new Summer Pride anthem. I'm Talia Schlanger, sitting in for Tom Power. You're listening to Q.
0: One of the best shows of the year, according to Apple, Amazon and Time, is back for another round. This season, we're diving deep into some of McCartney's most beloved songs. Yesterday, Band on the Run, Hey Jude, and McCartney's favourite song in his entire catalogue, here, there and everywhere. Listen to season two of McCartney, A Life and Lyrics on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Folks of my age, we really feel that elders, we have so few elders because of the AIDS crisis, right? It's almost like we walk around with like these holes in the sky. That's Catherine Hernandez, whose latest book, is kind of an
2: attempt at filling in some of those holes. I'm Talia Schlanger, sitting in for Tom Power. You're listening to Q. Catherine's latest novel is called The Story of Us. It follows a main character called MG, and she leaves her family in the Philippines to work as a caregiver abroad for an older trans woman. Catherine thought a lot about the idea of queer elders while she was writing this book. As you'll hear, you might recognize her name from her wildly successful novel, Scarborough, which uh, was also adapted into a film that Catherine wrote. It premiered at the Toronto International Film Festival. It went on to win eight Canadian Screen Awards. And when Catherine spoke to Tom Power, he started off their conversation with a question. This is the kind of question that often follows any artist who's had a big success.
1: Is there an additional pressure when Scarborough, your last book, does so well?
3: You know, I try not to put that pressure on myself because I guess for art, I I try not to make it about me at all. Uh, And so in this particular case, this book felt quite amazing to um, birth into this world, given that it was actually written at the beginning of lockdown. I decided to pretend that I was a rich lady in Downton Abbey— just sitting in my castle writing my lovers and it really helped me get through the uh, the the lockdown and um i knew that what my ancestors were telling me were write a book that feels like a hug write a book that feels like love and that's definitely where we landed at
1: what what do you mean that you you didn't write this book that your ancestors
3: wrote it um a, uh, and it's so funny, the, the face that you're giving me now <laughs> is the face that everyone gives me when I'm trying to explain this. So I believe that I am just a conduit to the whispers of the universe and that my ancestors are speaking through me. And all I do is write down what they say, you know, in, in some cultures we've called that a muse or whatever, right? But for me, I feel like it's spirit. It's a spirit work.
1: Here, here's what I don't, I don't understand about that. Yes. I have a lot of questions about your own lived experience and the way that you might approach writing. Am I wrong to ask any of that? Does it, does it come? Does all of your writing just come from this other place and your own life and your own experience has nothing to do with it? Or
3: I think that more like my ancestors are constantly moving me to and fro with regards to what experiences are going to be coming my way. So, for example, for Scarborough, I understood that. Oh well, I had a home daycare, living hand to mouth. And I could sense these conversations around me from frontline workers saying, you know, with this election, I don't know if I don't know if my job is going to be around tomorrow. And I don't know if all of this work that I've done building these bridges, I don't know if it's just going to be, you know, uh, tossed out the window tomorrow. And uh, I wanted to capture that precarity because of the fact that I could sense that there was this, these conversations being had around me that I was like, huh, there's something here. And I, I understand. Yeah.
1: Now I know what you mean by some people would call that the muse, some people yes. would call that the spirit. I so understand. Really, yeah. So now I can ask you about you. and Now we can talk yes. to you about you. Okay. <laughs> you can talk about so, so I thought it. So I thought the best way to talk about the, the uh, story of us is I actually wanted to start by getting you to put on some headphones.
3: Oh, certainly.
1: So um, I want to play a clip um, that might talk a little bit about how this book started for you. Take yes. a listen.
3: I give,
2: give I give to you
1: my tiny your tiny baby. We
3: give, give we give to you give, for each house around me. I give.
1: So Catherine, you can take your headphones off. <laughs> what did we what did we just hear?
3: What we heard was a song from the play Future Folk, which was created by the Sioux Long Theater Collective, um, and we collectively created a piece, which was a forty-five minute play where people, the audience, could live through the emotional truths of the live and caregiver program, and it was presented at Theater Passmorey.
1: Would I be? correct to think that that thing we just heard and what you just described might have led to this
3: book? Yes. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. And I just got chills because I have not heard that song in such a long time. And um, we wanted to make sure that we captured the uh, essence of what it was like to be a migrant worker here in Canada under the Notorious live Living Caregiver Program. And that meant that we had to Uh, do countless interviews with people who were still under the program and their choices to be away from their family, to observe the 24 months that they need to observe before possibly given the chance uh, to ask for permanent residency. And so understanding the vulnerability of this migrant population because of the fact that they have to live at their employer's house was something that was really eye opening for us one of the most memorable moments was like the our last show i think it was the second to last show or or something we had a free event for caregivers that day and um there was one point at the end of the play where the mom is reunited with her children and one child actually doesn't recognize her mom and the one like the, all of these women just covering their eyes and just crying. It uh, was one of the most memorable moments of my life as a performer. And um, it's so funny, I'm like getting all like emotional thinking about it. Um, I'm just so honored to be able to represent their stories. Yeah.
1: Do you want a tissue or anything? Are oh, you, no, I'm good. Are you sure? We got a couple over <laughs> oh, there. Oh, yeah, no,
3: I'm cool. I'm cool. But that's just so, it's just so awesome. Like being an artist is really, really awesome. It's its um, such an honor. And, you know, with the privilege that I have as someone whose stories are listened to, I feel just uh, thankful to be able to give them the microphone that they so deserve.
1: Tell me about MG.
3: Well, um, MG.
1: This is the lead character in the yes, in the,
3: story. the lead character. She h- ends up having to leave her hometown from Manila, and starts to live this, like such like intense like financial hardship, to the point where she decides to leave to become an overseas Filipino worker, to support both her husband. Her husband's sister and her two children, the, the two children, so her niece and her nephew. And first she goes to Hong Kong and then she goes to Toronto, Canada. And the idea is that she, because of the living caregiver program here in Canada, the, the draw for her to go to Canada is the fact that if she does observe the 24 months, it means that she has a chance to be reunited with her husband and start a life here in Canada. And uh, in if she and, does the yes. twenty four
1: months living with the family, that's right. She then gets to stay in Canada, yes. and then she can start re- being reunited with her family again. Yes. So it's like a period of just a, a two years that you got to get through yes. in order to kind of get your family back.
3: And um, there's a lot of pressure for mm. a person to be able to observe those twenty four months, even if they are being abused in a household, yeah. to stay with them. Because uh, if you can imagine if they if they go and they try to find another employer because of the fact that there's a certain amount of time that you have to observe those 24 months it could be that you have to start all over again right or you just get deported so so mg finds
1: herself living in this in this home yes Mm -hmm.
3: yes so she uh first uh she she does like a series of uh families here so i don't want to give too much away but it 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 becomes like this really um abusive situation and then she ends up having to leave and uh, ends up becoming the personal support worker for an elder by the name of Liz. And that's where the, this beautiful story really starts to blossom and develop.
1: How much can I talk about Liz?
3: So we can say that MG is cisgender and uh, uh, Liz is uh, is a a trans woman.
1: Talk to me a little bit about their relationship.
3: Well, at first uh, MG coming from this really conservative uh, Catholic, uh, Filipino upbringing, she is kind of confused by the entire idea of someone being trans. She's thinking that it's like some kind of weird, like lie that someone's telling themselves and that she's going to uphold a lie. And slowly realizing, thanks to very patient people from the trans community saying, actually, Liz isn't lying. Liz is a woman. And the more you understand who she is as a person the more we un- we think that this relationship between you and her like as a caregiver and client mm. is going to actually work right so uh, i really wanted to show like what the the journey of allyship could look like that it's not perfect it's not in a straight line she makes mistakes yeah but she slowly understands like the humanity of liz to the point where Then she realizes uh, Liz's illustrious past and we can we can leave that. That, Well, that's but that is
1: the part. And listen, (laughs) if I ask this question, you're like, Tom, it gives away too much. We can cut it. Oh, yeah. yeah, Sure, sure. But there was a question I had because, I mean, Liz, I think we can say this. Liz experiences um, Alzheimer's or or dementia. Liz also has, you know, this trove of VHSs and, um, you know, various sort of memories. Mm hmm. I was wondering if there was something to be said in, in what you were writing there about sort of like how susceptible queer histories are to being lost.
3: Oh, thank you so much for asking this question. Because, you know, folks of my age, we really feel that elders, we have so few elders because of the AIDS crisis, Right. it's almost like we walk around with like these holes in the sky thinking about like all the elders that we had lost but we had never learned from and people find it funny to think that like I'm 45 years old and I really feel that I'm going into queer elderhood we have to because of the fact that there's so few elders that we feel we have to take that place right away right and we just that's why I'm fine. Like, I really feel like, you know, look at me in my fancy hat and, you know, my big purse. I feel like I'm reaching auntie status like (laughs) sooner than a lot of people. I'm perfectly fine with it. Yeah. Okay. Because I think that uh, the more youth see that we can survive, that we have a place in this world that's really important. And that's the thing about like documentation and queerness is that, so because of the fact that we've often been silenced and erased. Like Liz. Like Liz, that it, we've been so many of us have been so smart to become documentarians so look at someone such as like um, uh, Chase Joint for example who is a renowned um, trans documentary filmmaker and and there's so many before him of like people who have worked really hard to document in um very low-rent ways, and you can see it with Liz, is that it's with VHS, right? That uh, she's capturing a moment uh, in time. And for her, I guess her angle is, I'm going to just talk to trans people about what their life is like so that we won't forget.
1: You said The Story of Us, you said this at the beginning of the interview to you, and you also said it in, in what I was reading about the book. You said The Story of Us is one of two novels I wrote during lockdown, and I wanted it to feel like a warm hug to all my readers. Yes. You write a lot about really tough things. Yes. Why is it important that when you write about tough stuff, it feels like a warm hug?
3: Oh, uh, I guess that's the reality of surviving. It's resilience, right? We're looking at two different people, one that is uh, surviving a diaspora and one that is surviving being disconnected from people that she knows and, and the reality that she understands because of dementia. And they're meeting in the middle and becoming chosen family. It's resilience on both ends because, you know, as someone who has survived the diaspora myself, is that there are lots of people that I consider my chosen family. My parents, you know, they, they had to con- they had to make my our aunts and uncles because of family being completely disconnected yeah. from in the Philippines. Also being a queer person for those of us who are not connected to our blood family anymore. What it is is that where there are people who are choosing how they are loved in this world, they're reparenting themselves, they're refamilying themselves, right? I'm I'm hoping that people understand, especially with the pandemic, is that you belong. We can love each other. We can choose each other. And when we meet each other in the middle, such beautiful things can happen.
1: I really love talking to you.
3: Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much for having me. Always, always. Always.
2: Catherine Hernandez is the award-winning writer behind Scarborough and Crosshairs. Her latest novel, The Story of Us, is out now, and you just heard her conversation with Tom Power. They got me living for the
0: weekend, leaning into how I'm feeling, and I don't see it as a weakness nah.
2: That's a bit of turning It Up by G.R. Grit, featuring Tessa Ballas. You might know G.R. from uh, the duo Quantum Tangle, They Wanted Juno. But the song you're hearing is the very first single from G.R.'s upcoming solo album called Prisms, Summer Jam. You can hear that, right? This is a summer jam. It's all about celebrating love, specifically queer love. G.R. Grit is a queer Anishinaabe and Métis artist. And as you'll hear, those identities are at the heart of everything they make. I talked to G.R. Grit to find out more about the song. Hey, GR. Welcome to Q.
0: Miigwech. Hello. Thank you for having me.
2: I'm so happy to have you here, and congrats on the single. Uh, I know you've been performing it at Pride events last month and then also at Sudbury Pride this month. What's it been like playing it in front of an audience?
0: Uh, you know, it's been interesting because I tend to play music solo these days. And so, you know, if you listen to the single, there's there's kind of a lot going on, you know? There's some uh, some awesome, like kind of kicking drums and, and synths going and lots of vocals, obviously with uh, my collaborator, Tessa. Um, so performing it live, it was something to get used to for sure, but exhilarating too.
2: Yeah. Let's talk about the crowd part of it. I mean, you're performing the song for the audience that you wrote it for when you're doing it at a pride event, right? Like Mm -hmm. this is, these are the people I think that you had in mind when you're writing. What kind of significance does that add for you in, in the experience?
0: Well, when I was a kid, there there were no prides around where I grew up and I didn't even have the language to talk about like queerness or transness or anything like that. And so I just started to think about like, man, what would it be like if I were my like seven-year-old, eight-year-old, 10-year-old self, 16, 17, you know, up to even in my 20s, what would that be like? And so I just have to remember that like showing up and just like, being real and, and having a voice and, and, and singing whatever that may be is like enough already hmm. because just being able to see someone like me, if I was a kid, I think would have like just made my heart explode. There's so much importance when it comes to pride. And I think sometimes we think it's just like this party or it happens once a year, but it's like, it, that's, it's an everyday thing. It's important to be seen by the people who need to see us the most.
2: Hmm, to be really visible. Mm-hmm. The We're talking about your, your queer identity. Also, you're an indigenous person. And I'm wondering, like uh, people talk about a, a lot of your music, even with your duo Quantum Tangle, deals with those identities. Is that a conscious choice that you make? Or is that just something that happens because you are the person that you are making the art that you're making in the world? You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, I know what you mean. And I think about it often because sometimes I'm like, oh, what if I just like wrote an album that was just like fun or just like this or that? And I'm like, well, there are songs on this album that are fun. And the thing is, is that it's not like I can get away from what I'm feeling, what I'm thinking, what I'm experiencing. And so maybe there are artists out there who can compartmentalize maybe or separate those things, but I'm I don't know if it's possible because I I guess it's not possible for me. So I I guess I can't speak for other folks, but I think like throughout my life, I tried to be like, oh, I want to be in this punk band and like write punk music. But everything that came out was just like sad emo music kind of thing. (laughs) Like, you know, screamo adjacent. I've tried to be a lot of different things musically. And I've also tried to be a lot of different things as a human being of like, oh, trying to be more like hetero or trying to fit into this cis hetero world. And it just, it it doesn't work for me. It's not possible. And so I think it's the same way for music of like, I could try all I want to like perform or create music that is just pop and just a certain way or just this way or that way. But like what tends to come out is like folk music or country adjacent or, you know, this pop music, but it will have like a lot of influences of for sure queerness. I, I, I don't think I can. I don't think I can pull those things apart. Hmm.
2: I can hear a lot of what you're saying on the song that you're going to introduce for us on on "Turn It Up." Would you tell me what was on your mind when you were writing it?
0: Well, I came. I, you know, I I, I knew that I wanted this album to be like all about love love songs and queer love songs and and then I kind of came to the realization that any love song I would ever write will be a queer love song. And I think that hmm. I think that's true for all artists again unless you can compartmentalize which I cannot but you know I think I often talk about being in high school and there are people in my high school who really like idolize like Freddie Mercury but at the same time it was so easy for them to erase his like bisexuality and his identity. And so, you know, growing up in 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 northern Ontario like it is not the most, you know, queer friendly place at least not when I was growing up and so it was interesting to me to have these folks who were like grew up in this homophobic place and like were emulating all these homophobic ideas and yet would sing you know queen at the top of their lungs would love all these songs and then simultaneously you know idealizing but then erasing that whole that whole part of of him and so um I think like for this song it was about like let's Let's just be clear cl- or clearer about who we're talking about, you know, using she pronouns and they pronouns and 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 being like visibly queer kind of in our lyrics and being like, well, there is no mistaking it. You know, we're, we're talking about queerness and there's not a way to like hide that behind anything. And maybe that makes it less marketable or something for some folks who maybe don't want uh, queerness in mainstream music. But I think... We need it there. It already exists there. It's just being erased or being hidden. And so let's just be more upfront about it.
2: It's not only there, it's like foundational, I think, in yeah. a lot of genres <laughs> to, to what music it is, whether we whether we yeah. say it out loud or not, right? Um, yeah. And I mean, I hear exactly what you're saying in the song. Some say turn it down, so we keep turning it up, right? Exactly. Yeah. Would you introduce the song for us, GR?
0: The song is called Turning It Up. It's by myself, so... GR Grit and Tessa Ballas and uh, I hope that you turn it up
2: (laughs) thanks GR, miigwech
0: miigwech we keep turning it up baby, turning it up now I've been stressed kind of obsessing over her and them I move my body in between and feel them pressing in I've been living for the weekend Leaning into how I'm feeling And I don't see it as a weakness No oh. Hot and heavy with my breathing Not a second left for sleeping There's a moment and we seize it Let's go oh. Some say No excuses and putting all love to the
2: Turning It Up by G.R. Grit, featuring Tessa Ballas. The very first single off their upcoming sophomore album called Prisms. It'll be out later this year, but you can listen to this song right now. That's it for this episode of The Q Podcast, but you can find another episode in your feed. It's Tom's conversation with Alicia Keys. You remember when she broke out a couple of decades ago with her song Fallen? Let me remind you that at that time, music was big pop stars and mega producers, and here was this classically trained pianist with a record called songs in a minor you'll hear her tell tom power how she managed to navigate breaking the mold in music and doing it with a whole lot of artistic integrity plus what it was like to call prince when she was 17 years old and ask for his permission to cover one of his songs that story you can find it right now in your feed i'm talia schlanger sitting in for tom power see you next time